0: this podcast is part of the shareable podcast network learn more at shareable.fm the shortest distance between two points is a straight line but rarely do successful people get from point a to point b taking the most direct route host jeffrey Klein speaks to a diverse mix of people to explore their story of success and the dots connected along the way thank you for listening here's your host jeffrey
1: To paraphrase a line from swingers, this episode is money. Well, it's about money. Uh, I get to have a conversation with one of my best friends, Edward Lees, who has been working in finance for years and years and gives some tips, generally about thinking about investing, but just about thinking in general and the importance of it, both in business and in life. Uh, Great to talk to him as always, enjoy. My guest today is Edward Lees, who built and co-runs the $2 billion Environmental Strategies Group at BNP Paribas Asset Management, and is co-lead portfolio manager for the Energy Transition and Environmental Absolute Return thematic funds. Edward began his career in 1994 at Morgan Stanley in New York City in investment banking and private equity. He joined Goldman Sachs in 2000, where he was an MD and founded and ran a thematic investing in special situations group. He set the hedge fund Clear River Capital in 2009 and subsequently went on to UBS as an MD to start a principal investing business. He was co-founder of North Shore Partners in 2012 that later merged with Duet Asset Management in 2015, where he ran a global long short investment business. Edward holds an MBA from Wharton and a BA from Amherst College, he graduated magna cum laude. Edward lives in London with his wife and two daughters. Welcome, Edward.
0: Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, And of course, the one thing, uh, uh, this season's a little different where Edward's also one of my closest, dearest friends uh, that I'm very happy to have on the show. And I like to start at the beginning, Edward. So where were you born and what did your parents do for a living?
0: I was actually born in Massachusetts, a little place called Turner's Falls, which uh, happened to also be near Amherst, uh, because my father was teaching there at the time, uh, and close to Mount Holyoke as well, where my mother taught. They were historians. Um, They also met in Massachusetts at Harvard while getting their doctorates, but we only stuck around there for a couple of years before we moved to Philadelphia, uh, which is where I grew up, and my mom taught at UPenn. Uh, for many years later, becoming vice provost of the university. And my dad taught at Rutgers, and he was chair of the history department there for many years.
1: I'm just pausing for a moment while the sirens behind me.
0: Oh, I thought that was here. I was like, that was very, you have like detailed audio pickup.
1: Yes. Um, okay. So with having parents who were academics, as a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Were you thinking that way, or or were you thinking something more astronaut sort of? What was in your mind?
0: As I think you're aware, I had absolutely no idea. Uh, (laughs) And at one point, perhaps a professional gamer, if there there had been such a thing then, but I was born, um, let's see, what, maybe 35 years too early for that. Mm. Back then it was just called wasting time. I mean, later I thought I might go into the windsurfing industry, designing and building boards and fins. Uh, that was something I started to do in high school.
1: And so growing up, into, now I know you'd windsurfed when you were up on the Cape and, um, and I guess you did sailing at Taqua Camp, I'm aware of you went there. Yes. Uh, was anyone who were kind of, you looked up to as role models growing up? I mean, was it your parents? Was there anyone else outside the family you're like, he's a windsurfer, I wanna do that or anything else of that nature?
0: You Jeff, I looked up to you. (laughs) You still do, I
1: know that's the way it is.
0: (laughs) It sounds odd to say, but I really don't remember having um, anyone when I was very young that I looked up to other than perhaps one older and much more socially adept person on the wrestling team in high school named Caleb Callan. I joined the team in ninth grade and looked up to him. But uh, it probably wasn't until I got to college that I started to feel a strong connection to inspirational figures. I will always look up to Joe Epstein. He was my intro to philosophy professor and was such a thinker, a dual PhD in physics and philosophy. He refused to let students take notes in class saying it got in the way of listening and understanding. I believe he also said there's no such thing as a writing problem. It's just a thinking problem. Uh, Well, either he said that or William Kenick, another inspirational philosophy teacher of mine. One of his choice quotes was run, don't walk to the writing counselor. I think both instilled in me, um, an appreciation of precise analytical thinking. Uh, as an interesting side note, Dr. kennick uh, actually taught my father as well. But you know, after that, I was inspired by people like Wallace Stevens, who not only is one of the most influential American poets of the 20th century, but also had been a vice uh, president of an insurance company in Hartford. He actually declined a post at Harvard after winning the Pulitzer Prize due to his uh, business obligations. I, I like the example of being able to pursue creative excellence whilst remaining engaged in a practical uh, pursuit day to day.
1: Which leads me to my question about storytelling, which is kind of what I'm obsessed with, and you talked about these great thinkers, these you know philosophy professors, and I know philosophers in general um, who are thinking about things. But for me, you know, it's important to communicate that, and I think the best way to do so is through telling stories. Was anyone who you grew up with or were in college that you thought were really great storytellers, and why were they so good?
0: Yeah, I would say Tolkien. Uh, from a young age, I read The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, and The Silmarillion many times, starting at a age around age seven or eight, um, until even you know recently to my nieces. Um, I read them not only to my daughters, but uh, well, uh, to my nieces who I mentioned, but well, perhaps not The Silmarillion, but the rest. You know, the fantasy and wonder to begin with made them successful for me. These days, the idea of high fantasy has become so commercialized and rolled out in cookie cutter fashion, I think it's hard to appreciate how fresh it felt in the 1970s. And then of course, there was the epic struggle, you know, with all the twists and turns. So there was a measure of effective tension from that, but also effective were the values that encompassed it all, the whole good versus evil thing, I think.
1: Uh, Yeah, big fan. I'm actually thinking of uh, sharing the movies, The Lord of the Rings, which I love, uh, with my 11 year old, Ethan. Uh, in the not too distant future. So I'm uh, debating whether I show him The Hobbit first, and then even though the movie came out later, we'll have to decide, maybe I'll tap your uh, opinion on how to, which which order they need to be shown in. Uh, What about, so you've been working a long time. What was your first paying job?
0: My first paying job was a little different. It was construction. Um, I took a year off uh, before going to college after high school and refurbished and rebuilt houses in Philadelphia. My mom took my sister to Belgium for the year. She had a job teaching at a university there, Leuven, I think, and wanted to expose my sister to living abroad. I'd already gotten my adventure living in Leicester, uh, England with my parents in 1978. So that left me and my dad in Philadelphia. It was a nice year living with him. Work was different. It was physically tiring. I did everything from demolition to rough and fine carpentry to masonry to just hauling things around. We worked in down and out areas of Philadelphia where the property prices were cheap. Crack vials were sometimes scattered around the work site and you wanted to make sure nobody was camping out in the building before starting the day. The other workers were very nice, but they also came from much different backgrounds. I definitely stood out. I sometimes wonder about where they are today and how they're doing. I'd say it was a very good experience for me on a variety of levels.
1: Paul, I'm just gonna close this window because my. Well, as my, hold on, as my uh, twin daughters are just finishing 10th grade, and we're starting to think about uh, going to college themselves, do you recommend and think there's value in taking your, I know it's a very European thing to take a gap year, not so much in America. What are your thoughts on, do you recommend that to, to people, to your daughters?
0: I mean, I guess it depends who you are, but uh, generally, yes, I, I think I gained a huge amount of maturity in that year, although it barely showed, I know, <laughs> arriving at school. I will comment on that. I, yeah, I mean, j- well, just think about it as, you know, God forbid you had seen me a year earlier. Um, generally uh, speaking, yes, I think that it's, uh, I think it's a good thing.
1: And then, so, uh, you know, you, you mentioned already, you know, the inspiration of the philosophy professors, and you were a European studies major, and yet you work in high finance. How, how did that happen. That <laughs> wasn't supposed to be your plan, I don't think. At that stage, and in, in, you know, I know you were pre-med and you're in a European study, so you seem to always have straddle very different kind of interests. How did you, but, but you focused on European studies, kind of almost following somewhat in the footsteps and then took a very big strange pivot from, I think, objectively about thinking where you're going to end up going to work for Morgan Stanley in New York City.
0: Yeah, it certainly didn't happen intentionally. Uh, That's for sure. You know, I bounced around, there's no doubt. Uh, Even before European studies, which is itself just an amalgamation of classes from different uh, departments, I was a physics major. And this was the time I thought I would go into studying aero and hydrodynamics and become an engineer so I could build better windsurfers. I discovered I was okay at higher level math, but not great. And that discouraged me. So I shifted to neuroscience, which actually was a major at Amherst. And I did all my pre-med courses and worked my summers at the medical school at the University of Pennsylvania uh, in a pharmacology lab doing neurosurgery on rats and studying Huntington's disease. I still liked my humanities courses, though, and and, and that's where I felt more stimulated. And so I tacked, I I moved uh, to European studies, or actually I added it on top um, to to the pre-med thing. And uh, that was so I could do my honors thesis in intellectual history which is basically just half history and half philosophy, which is sort of how my my course is focused in European studies. Pre-med continued, but I sacrificed the other courses I would need for um, neuroscience in favor of philosophy. So my ending major was just in European studies. When I graduated, I had every intention of going to medical school. I just wanted to see the world for a little. So I I, uh, very naively went to New York for a break to work in investment banking for two years for Morgan Stanley before returning to medical school. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I mean, to illustrate the point, when I took the first interview it, at college, I thought I was talking to the company that made Stanley Power Tools. Anyway, one thing led to another. New York led to London, London led to Paris and some private equity work and then poof, I was caught. I came back to Philadelphia, but it was to get an MBA at this point at Wharton. And then afterwards I returned to London to work for Goldman uh, Sachs and I'm still here.
1: Well, that may answer the next question, but I'll, you know, I know you've traveled extensively—not uh, just in Europe, but in China and, and kind of far-flung places. Places. Um, what's the most surprising place you think you found yourself? Whether it's the location or engaging with a person you lo- that you could have never imagined. Oh my God, I'm in this place talking to that person.
0: Uh, China, for sure. You know, one of the hedge fund businesses I built had offices in Shanghai and Guangzhou as well as London. And we had mainland China financial backers. And over the course of two years spent about six months traveling all over China. And I had a lot of very out there experiences. If I had to pick one, uh, well, once we had this unusual meeting set up with a monk, my business partner and I were picked up from our hotel in a black Hummer, which stood out quite a bit already in the place we were. And we were driven to a large warehouse. Uh, Inside, we found many religious students in robes who ushered us upstairs past a huge number of very old-looking religious objects. And we met an older monk who informed us that he was entrusted by the Politburo of the Chinese Communist Party to start a museum dedicated to the history of Buddhism in China. He walked us around the warehouse showing us objects, some of which he said no Westerner had ever seen before. He's included many wooden carvings that were thousands of years old, paintings, and even some terracotta statues from Xi'an. At one point, he let me handle three polished, precious stones. I remember they'd been shaped into spheres. Each was as big as maybe a very large marble, a little smaller than a ping pong ball. And they had incredible deep colors to them. I forget them all. I think one was, remember one being red. Anyway, he said that they had special religious significance, were over 2,000 years old. The whole experience ended up being flipped on its head, as often happened to me in China. We thought we were meeting an interested investor, as strange as that sounds, With that being a monk, but he ended up asking us for help to support his museum. Just behind that was probably the time I had dinner with the key leader and their equivalent of the FBI or Internal Security Department. He was uh, dressed like uh, Kim Jong Un, including the haircut, and a bodyguard, and he had a massive pink gold Rolex, and he scared the living daylights out of me. But you know, that's a story for another time.
1: Uh, speaking of stories, you know. I know that part of your business has been in trying to convince when you're raising money and convincing people to invest in this or that. How important do you think being a good storyteller is for business?
0: Oh, very important. Um, I I think storytelling is, is the crux of, uh, of good, of, well, a, a big part of business. Um, you know, there, there's a whole side of business, uh, that revolves around raising money and, and marketing, marketing your business. And, and that's uh, very much storytelling. I mean, you know, I actually grew up being quite shy. You know, over time, particularly at Amherst, I think I found my voice in the classroom, finding some courage and learning to speak up and say things that were relevant. Wharton was another experience that helped me with that. The cold call method was used in many classes and you had to listen carefully and analyze things quickly to not get caught off guard. The best experience, however, by far for learning to tell stories has come from my years of having to raise capital for my businesses from investors. And I've gone through years where I've started with nothing but an idea in a competitive marketplace, and I've had to try to convince people to back me with significant sums of money. I've been face-to-face with people from many different nationalities, speaking to them both directly and through interpreters. I've been in closed rooms one-on-one with billionaires and in big forums giving presentation in front of crowds. I've spoken to very smart and experienced gatekeepers, as well as very young and relatively thoughtless gatekeepers, and they all require slightly different approaches, and reading people can be as important as the core pitch, how you adjust it in real time. They all offer lessons in being able to sell better. I think being a storyteller is a key part of the exercise. Business people can have a tendency to start with the opportunity and move on to the right strategy and tactics to take advantage of it, but it can leave you cold. What you really need to start with, if possible, is a value-led goal that the business is trying to accomplish and let the other person feel how they can be a part of it. I think the greatest speakers, Churchill, Gandhi, Mandela, Martin Luther King, knew how to start with that simple unifying vision, that dream.
1: And, you know, you've had to, you talk about how you kind of, this was developed over time um, and and almost out of necessity when, depending on where you were uh, situated, Do you think that being a good storyteller is a skill that can be developed or you either have it or you don't?
0: You can absolutely learn. You know, I think I just point back to sort of my journey uh, from my shy beginnings uh, to my complete naivete around business. Uh, If you take time to study people and practice and learn from your mistakes, uh, you absolutely can learn.
1: Now you've shifted uh, through a variety of different things within the finance world, and now you're kind of focused on th- the idea of having, having a fund where you're focused on sustainability. How hard is it to be focused on making money and also trying to kind of do good in the world, which it seems like that's what you're trying to do?
0: Uh, I'd say it's easy uh, right now. Maybe it wouldn't Maybe it wouldn't always have been this easy, but uh, right now I'm finding it easy. Tens of trillions are going to be spent on growing the sectors I'm looking at because of the simple fact that environmental threats are existential threats. And After years of denial, politicians are getting it. Trump aside, we have the, the EU Green Deal, the China Net Zero, 2060 Plan, similar policies from Japan and Korea. And Biden now will bring the US back into the fold. So these are really exciting, growing areas. They're great to invest in and they're very topical. You know, the the, the pendulum has shifted. We can feel that the the public mood has really really shifted. And I think climate skepticism is very much on the back foot right now. What is uh, best is I feel good knowing that I'm giving money to people to help grow products and services that are also helping to reduce society's collective environmental footprint. And, you know, I have to say also, it's really nice that my daughter takes note of that, or well, both of them, whether it's a news article or just a conversation over the dinner table. Um, they, notice, uh, they notice more about what I'm doing now, and, and that feels nice.
1: So let's, uh, I know this is kind of a joke for people outside of uh, investing, you know, they'll say, you know, what's a tip or, you know, what should I invest in? If someone was, you know, saying I had a little bit of money and I want to invest in something in the stock market... How would you guide them or well, what kind of, where would you start?
0: Just let me do it for you. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I, I would say um, start young and invest in your own ideas. Not so much in what you read. If you see a product that you love or a company that resonates with you, well, that means they're doing something right. And other people probably feel the same way. And maybe that'll help the company do well. Uh, Peter Lynch, I think, used to talk about how some of his ideas would come from speaking to his family about these kind of firsthand experiences. Of course, also diversify. Don't put so much in the market that if we were to fall, I don't know, 50%, you couldn't digest that. Um, But, you know, generally speaking, though, equities are generally a better place to be than bonds, given how low interest rates are. Um, and the huge amount of monetary stimulus around the world could also spark some inflation and, and interest rate increases in the coming years, though not, not right away, which will also uh, 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 challenge bonds so it, well, and equity markets too. So you want to look out for that. But, but the environment's pretty good right now, I would say, um, coronavirus aside. And uh, I would encourage people to just yeah follow their own ideas.
1: Uh, one of the things I always was impressed with when I've, and I've seen this with a couple different financial advisors as they have the chart of the stock market and if you look at it long enough it still trends upward from when it started yeah there's ups and downs but over the very long term it still seems to be climbing if you look at it in you know a couple decades at a time um, do you think that goes on ad infinitum
0: well it's always hard to predict the future but i think one thing that owning equities has going for it is that you actually own a part of a business that can grow. So if you get into an era uh, of hyperinflation, which has happened in South America or the Weimar Republic in Germany, you know, there's a lot of assets that can all of a sudden become worthless. Um, But when you own a piece of something that's real, that can keep growing, uh, and, and building, it, it's, it's your best protection. So, so generally speaking, uh, owning equities over the long-term uh, will probably continue to be a reasonably good strategy, uh, particularly if you're young.
1: Well, in terms of strategy, I often, and I think mean, we've had conversations about the, the fluctuations in the market, when you buy, when you sell, a lot of it seems up to chance to someone maybe outside of it. And that, it, you know, I joke that it's kind of like gambling, and you know you may bet think you've got a good hand but uh there's so many other factors that you can't control um i know you've done a lot of um modeling about certain you know that you actually have data and science kind of behind the algorithms when you're making decisions how important is that in terms of making decisions about what to invest in
0: every investment is different you know sometimes Things are more driven by evaluation and and detailed models. Others, it's more about strategic positioning. Other times it's more about exposure to a certain macroeconomic theme and and, the the company level information is is secondary actually. It's as you say, a very complex uh, uh, universe that one's analyzing with a lot of confounding variables. So there's no one formula. Um, but, you know, in certain situations, there are things that one can do to recognize asymmetric uh, risk-reward profiles on a forward-looking basis. You know, a lot of the time, it's it's hard to predict the future. Uh, things could go up or go, or go down, but there are times, uh, not most of the time, maybe 20% of the time, where you can pick out situations where, whilst nothing's guaranteed, on a forward-looking basis, um, it's 80% likely that one scenario is gonna happen and maybe only 20% likely that another one is gonna happen. I'm using very crude numbers, but I'm just highlighting the point that I think good investing in part is understanding in those minority of cases and identifying them uh, when you can pick out those asymmetric risk rewards, understanding that it's the minority of the time, but when they do happen, leaning into them uh, quite aggressively.
1: And you said you should start young. How, how young do you think someone should be? And how much money, what's the minimum amount of money you'd need to start investing in the stock market?
0: Well, you need very little these days. I mean, I think that there's there's a number of services that allow you to buy fractional shares uh, that didn't exist in, in my day. So, I, I mean, we first heard about this when there were certain services popping up to let you buy Berkshire Hathaway when, you know, it was impossible to afford one share. But I think that that sort of service has rolled out more generally um, so that it's, it's very easy to invest with almost nothing. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm in the UK, not in the U S or, but uh, my understanding is that the Robinhood accounts uh, are pretty easy to get. And uh, I've been wanting to set something like that up for both of my daughters so they could just get into the, the hang of, of, of what it's like to save and invest and uh, make decisions and, and see the implications of, Of their choices
1: and in terms of those choices you know one of the questions i i think my daughters would ask me should i go for a stock that's a known big brand um or should i go for something that's very niche and maybe not as well known Uh, do you have any thoughts on the kind of choice two two big very different choices
0: yeah i mean again it just depends you know sometimes where you get these um Oligopolies. Uh, you know, well let's just think about big tech. You know, they're so big now that unless the regulators come out and pull the carpet out from under them, they're almost too big to fail. Not not because of uh, in the way that the banks were, because they provided um, uh, just absolutely necessary financing for the rest of the economy to work, but just because they have so much expertise and so such deep pockets that they can just buy up any young start competitor. Um, And so it's going to be very, very hard to dethrone somebody like Google or Amazon. And in that sense, investing with the big companies or Apple, you know, has continued to be a great strategy. Um, But there's always going to be the young disruptor that is going to end up being, you know, maybe not a $100 billion company, uh, but maybe a billion dollar company. And they start small. And if you can pick those, you can do great, but the odds are lower that you're going to pick. thinking
1: about the example, you're talking about like these tech companies buying up things, you know, I just got an Oculus Quest. And when Oculus was bought by Facebook, it's like, because I know they were working on their own VR kind of stuff. And they're like, I guess they decided Oculus had gotten faster and better. And they're like, okay, we'll just buy it and it'll become part of our VR
0: um, yeah, and, and, and you know that's not necessarily a bad outcome if if the public equity that you own is getting bought out. Um, I personally have a soft spot for the young disruptors, and you know I do a lot in that area now in terms of battery technology and fuel cells and uh, uh, and, and others. Um, and you know the risks are higher because they've got to prove themselves and they've got a um, you know they've got to grow to critical mass and start. Finding a way to make money, and uh, but if they can do it, the rewards are, are quite are quite good. Um, it just takes a little bit more research and work to make sure that they have what it takes.
1: And, and as a as a result, I, I know we talk about this, you know, in real estate as well, in terms of if you're going to have a you know anchored tenant, a bigger you know bigger known tenant, you get less return than if you have a, a business. I, I, I would assume that the the same is somewhat so true in finance. That, You know, if you're going to buy one of the bigger, you know, kind of established, the likelihood of that going up 50 percent is not as great as if you take a risk on a startup that could go, could jump up.
0: You know, risk and reward. So generally, I would have said yes until I saw Tesla this year. But I mean, generally speaking, yes, risk and reward go together and something that's well categorized, that's covered by everybody, where people sort of have a good sense of what's going on. it's it's more likely that the the set of reasonable futures that could happen is sort of more or less priced into the stock. Uh, And it's going to be harder to come by those surprises. But it's not impossible. Again, like Tesla, Uh, big companies can also surprise you. Um, But it's more likely that with the smaller companies, you're going to find that you make the bigger returns.
1: And in terms of your own position and you can answer this in a variety of different ways how do you define success
0: well i think broadly i'd say finding what brings you peace and focusing on it Um, for me that's in part trying to be a good father it's in part trying to do something at work that matters beyond my own self-interest so you know investing to help the environment it's trying to better understand just my own you know consciousness it's uh you know So I'm not just yanked around by life, but I can observe it in a more controlled way. So this is, you know, a reference I meditate and I try to pick apart how one thinks about identity and purpose. Um, I think it's also trying to find a way to leave something behind, something creative. You know, that's also something I'm still, I'm still working on, but it does give me a sense of purpose.
1: And related, uh, so uh, what inspires you?
0: Uh, I'd say good poets like Richard Wilbur, um, brave athletes like Alex Honold and rock climbing and Kai Lenny and surfing. Um, I'd say insight from spiritual leaders like so- uh, uh, Sogyal Rinpoche and finally, probably just, you know, expansive natural beauty, feeling like you're a part of nature.
1: Love that. Uh, you've been in business a long time. You've been in finance a long time. What piece of advice would you give to your 21-year-old self?
0: Buy Amazon stock. (laughs) But if I I had a second piece, it might be to take a leap of faith and move to Hawaii and try to make a life there. Forget about the corporate grind that so many schools funnel you into. You know, that might have been fun.
1: Well, I know you spend time there and uh, with your sister living there. So you get the best of both worlds. That's right. What do you think is the next trend in, in investing and, and finance in general?
0: Yeah, so I mean, there's certainly um, one trend has been the, the upswell in interest in sustainable investing, uh, sometimes referred to as ESG, environmental social governance. That's, that's been a trend. Uh, certainly over the last number of years, we've seen a huge trend towards passive investing in ETFs. I think we actually might get to a point where that snaps back towards active investing, but we'll see. Um, uh, We've seen a huge push towards bot investing robots, so more automation, more AI, more machine learning. I I think that continues. Um, So that probably invalidates my point about active investing and passive Mm -hmm. investing. (laughs) Um, But in terms of subsectors, I'd say sustainable tech-enabled agriculture. I think the the way we feed ourselves is the next thing to really get disrupted um, and, and fuel cell applications for heavy industry. So I think those are the next big trends in terms of sectors that, you know, that I see.
1: And what's next for Edward Lees?
0: More of the same. I am just trying to grow, grow uh, my business. I guess I have um, a couple new products coming out. So I've got one long only fund and one hedge fund, and I've got another, long only fund, which will launch in the new year. So I guess what's next is thinking more about natural capital, not just the, not just the, uh, the climate, but, uh, the environment more broadly.
1: So now we're going to move to this rapid fire questions. And I always hesitate when I say rapid fire, cause sometimes they're not as quick as I think they're going to be, but, uh, let's begin with question one. Is it better to be a planner or a doer?
0: Doer. Provided you let your experience inform your plans, learn by doing and your plan will be grounded in reality, not guesses.
1: Should stories always have happy endings? No. Why not? (laughs)
0: Uh, It just doesn't reflect real life. Nice to keep people on their toes. Do you have a favorite emoji? I'd say a whale spouting water. Why do you ask? Well, because... <laughs> it's on the cover of the iconic emoji Dick or Moby Dick retold in emojis. Also reminds me of Cape Cod. Uh,
1: if you had to pick a karaoke song, which what one would you pick?
0: None. Karaoke is embarrassing for me.
1: <laughs> but you like to sing, so okay. I, if you don't have an answer, but I, I ask: name a favorite song.
0: Oh, I I have a lot of favorite songs. Um, uh, Stairway to Heaven. It was always played at the last dance at Camp Takwa. I've always had a, that's always a you know favorite song of mine.
1: Favorite social media platform.
0: Um, I use Instagram the most, so I'll say that one.
1: Name a book that left a lasting impression on you.
0: The Tibetan Book of Living and Dying.
1: Name one of your favorite movies.
0: Animal House.
1: What's the one thing you can't live without?
0: I'd say aside from family, my unplugging and reconnecting time. So for me, that means being active outdoors in either Cape Cod or Hawaii.
1: And if you could be credited with inventing something, what would it be and why?
0: That's hard. Um, I'm so far from being able to realistically invent something. But if, if I'm dreaming, I'd say a medical cure say, for uh, Parkinson's disease, something that would improve the lives of many. And I pick Parkinson's because my grandfather on my father's side had it. My father is currently struggling with it as well. Um, So, you know, I guess there's a chance I will too. Anyway, coronavirus has been such an ordeal. It helps remind us of our, you know, fragility and the importance of medical research, I'd say.
1: Edward, you've been an awesome guest, as I knew you would, even though I'll admittedly say some of what you said went over my head and may have gone over this. Those that are not as uh, financially uh, sophisticated as you uh, if people wanted to learn more about ESG or kinds of other things is there anything you were promoting either for them to look into or or that you would direct them to
0: well I do have some successful investment funds one of which is quite innovative but there's strict regulations on how they can be promoted so I, I won't say any more there people can you know find me and then I can refer them on to the right people but on a different note I uh, in terms of uh, promoting something. I would say that I wrote a pamphlet to help one of my daughters a year ago. It focuses on meditation as a tool to deal with stress and anxiety, something we all face these days. Anyway, I decided to put it on Amazon Kindle in case it could help others too. It's just a short e-pamphlet. You can find it under the pen name Wade Elders titled Practical Medication. If you have uh, uh, any interest, uh, it's fairly concise and practical summary of some uh, different meditation practices.
1: We will definitely include that in our show notes and I can, from personal experience, say, I love the pamphlet. I actually have a hard copy of it as well. Uh, And then if people want to connect with you, what's the best way for them to do it? LinkedIn? Or is there something better than that?
0: Best is definitely on LinkedIn under Edward Lees. I I show up as a uh, senior portfolio manager at BNP. So that's the Edward Lees, but yeah, LinkedIn for sure.
1: Edward, uh, as one of my closest friends, I always enjoyed chatting with you, even if this, uh, conversation may have taken a more serious tone than you and I are used to having between the <laughs> two of us. Um, but I think it's, uh, you've given us a lot of valuable insight uh, about investing and, and also just about how to think and the importance of being kind of mindful uh, in lots of different varieties. So I want to thank you. And I want to thank you, especially for helping us connect the dots.
0: Thank you, Jeff. It's been a real treat.
1: Thank you for taking your time to listen to this podcast. Please subscribe on your preferred podcast platform so you don't miss any future episodes. If you could also do me a favor and please leave a review on iTunes, I would really appreciate that. Remember, story matters and is the best way to connect the dots.